listening to Phenomenology Club Radio. Hello and thank you for listening to this audio podcast. I am Buttress, the host of Phenomenology Club, which is an interactive online community of artists and thinkers centered around this content that I create and curate online for us to talk about which is why both our tagline for Phenomenology Club and the subtitle for this discussion series is Talk About It. Most of these uploads are originally streamed live on our YouTube page. If you're interested in interacting with those as they happen live, please go subscribe and turn on the notifications at youtube.com slash phenomenologyclub. And in general, to learn more about our club, what we do, and how you can become a member for only $1 a month, please visit our website at www.phenomenology.club. Thank you for listening. Stay trippy. Hello. Did I scare you? It's me, Buttress, a.k.a. Bethany, from the Hebrew word for house of poverty, which has become a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways. Thanks, Mom. Um, yes, it's true. I'll, I'll start this stream with a fun fact. Did you know the reason that so many churches and Christian bookstores are named Bethany is because <laughs> Christians are not uh, necessarily known for being the most scholarly of people. And uh, somehow, as a group, they became convinced that this word Bethany means house of figs and i've also seen it uh uh put forward that it means house of god which i think is the popular definition and why all these churches are called bethany (laughs) um but apparently this is completely false bethany means house of poverty and the general sentiment is you know it's house of devastation because in the bible uh those those of you some of you might know In the Bible, Bethany is the town where Lazarus died and was resurrected by our Lord, Babu Jeebus. Anyway, happy Sunday. Um, Oh yeah, wait. (laughs) And that leads me to my next fun anecdote. You prefer House of Figs? Well, your name's not Bethany, I assume. So you would. I prefer House of Poverty because that just sounds badass. Doesn't that sound metal as fuck? But um, I'm someone who really hates my last name. It's so ugly and stupid, and it also just doesn't jive with my first name at all. Um, So I'm going to change my last name to House. Actually, I have plans to do that. So my name will be Bethany House, and then no one will ever be able to find me on Google because that's already the name of, like, 500 Christian bookstores across America. So, bitch, you'll never find me. Um... (laughs) anyways happy sunday oh trendell is here trendell i miss you my new jersey brother brethren from from the town of anglewood (laughs) anglewood totally sounds like some hobbit bullshit doesn't it anglewood where trendell resides in his (laughs) i don't know the name for an english house i was gonna say shire that's some hobbit shit is shire like a thing or is that just a thing in the hobbit I'm sure one of you UK motherfuckers know. I think it means something. Some sort of residence. Um, yeah, anyway, happy Sunday. Uh, I won't say which Sunday it is. Is that music in the back too loud? 
because uh, I can't really do anything about it. Um, I won't tell you which Sunday it is because I like to, I like these uploads to be suspended in time. I haven't gone live in about like a week or something when I did my binaural beats exploration video, which was stupid, but seems to be getting a good amount of views, I guess, because I did a video stream of it. Um, and I feel guilty because I haven't, I haven't, I haven't gone live. I was like doing sometimes I was doing it every day. We're not on a schedule. I hope that's okay for people. I'm, I'm going to try to do it at least once a week, you know, when I'm feeling, even when I'm feeling not entirely, uh, talkative. Like, I'm not really tonight, but I'm going to force myself to speak because I care so much about my audience. Hold on, I'm taking my sweatshirt off. Oh, it's hot in here. Maybe I'm just feeling flustered because I can perceive that there's a tension on me. Oh, and my pop screen fell. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I, I just haven't really been feeling, like, uh, incredibly uh, desiring to, like, talk about shit recently. Because my mind has just been so, so elsewhere. I haven't really been feeling super philosophical. My mind is on a lot of uh other things uh that that i don't think would do good as discussion topics here but that's okay um one thing i said on twitter oh wait uh, wait wait i'm not done introing sorry look look i'm rusty i haven't been on the mic in like a week i'm rusty um it, I, I am not afraid. I feel soon I will have much more philosophical ammo because those of you who are in Phenomenology Club already know that next Sunday, as in a week from today, we will be resuming our speed reading series. And for those of you who don't know, speed reading is Phenomenology Club's reading series. We read a different PDF that I provide. It's all online. You don't have to buy anything. We read a different PDF each meeting. Uh, they happen two weeks or longer. In this case, much longer. We haven't met in a minute, but we're going to resume. Uh, each reading is under 25 pages. And I also typically do an audio reading of the text out loud. I'm actually thinking about maybe doing it after this upload because I'm just in the mood to read some philosophy. It's... It's been a few weeks and I'm feeling stupid. My brain is getting dumber. But we're going to be reading um, the first section, the introduction, and then the first two parts of section A called Consciousness from the seminal work of philosophy, The Phenomenology of Spirit by Hegel. So this is a very, very big work of philosophy. If you're not a member of Phenomenology Club, um, I think you should become one because, you know, look, look, there's a group of people that are going to hold you accountable to do some cool reading. So one day when you meet someone cute, someone cute and smart, you could be like, oh, have you read Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit? Because like, I like read some of it. Uh, so don't you want to do that? It's only a dollar. Uh, I don't know if the link's in here, but yeah, the link will be in the description when the upload's done at least. 
you can sign up on Patreon. It's $1. Patreon.com slash phenomenology.club. And then you get the super secret club password to our club website where you can access all of these PDFs and shits that I'm talking about. And links to the audio readings of me doing dramatic readings. There's also some on our YouTube channel. Listen to the Socrates one because it's hilarious. We had multiple club members uh, reading the separate parts. I was Socrates, of course. Uh, and it's really funny. Um, but anyway, that's that's my intro. I When I tried to promote this on Twitter, I said to try to lure people into here, and maybe it would be a good segue into tonight's discussion, I said that I would preface this discussion by sharing my latest hot take. But honestly, it's like a take that has been brewing in my mind for a while, and I'm really not going to go super into it. I just said I would share, so I will share a little bit. But the hot take is that, are you ready? I'm becoming of the mindset, well, I mean, I really think I am of the mindset at this point, that, are you ready? Ready for this controversy? That polygamy is a much more feminist model of marriage than monogamy. What, 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 what? How could you say that? I say that because, <laughs> and like I said, I'm really not going to get into it. I'm just keeping my promise. I'm a promise keeper. Um... I could go on, but I won't. But basically, I think that monogamy is basically an institution that was created essentially to promote the incel agenda. <laughs> the idea behind monogamy is that every man can have a wife. Every man deserves a wife. Every man gets his own woman. Because, you know, in the polygamous model, uh, women... Oh, basically <laughs> procreate with the the alpha male the vin diesel if you will all the women are married to vin diesel and then all the fucking beta dudes who aren't vin diesel have no women and they don't get to procreate that's not fair that's not right i should get to spread my fucking beta seed why does only vin diesel get to spread his alpha male seed everywhere huh and I would argue that um, this is much more natural uh, where multiple women procreate with the same Vin Diesel. Do you have alpha Vin Diesel babies? <laughs> but just because it's natural, of course, does not mean that it's, it's the thing we ought to pursue, right? But the reason that I think it uh, is a more feminist model is, I mean, there's many reasons. Uh, for one, I think women have more independence under this model. They don't have to wait hand and foot for their uh, chosen incel that they've been married to, have to be with alone, whatever. I mean, think about like things like, I mean, what is the function of marriage? Personally, I don't believe in marriage at all. I think marriage is stupid, whether in like a religious sense, which is like kind of, you know, that's like the foundation for monogamous marriage in America anyway. But then, also, like, um, in a political sense, I mean, I don't really see the purpose of it. It's kind of linked to things like property rights, you know? And I don't even believe in property rights. Why do we have to own property? I don't, I don't think owning property is a good or venerable thing. So, let me just say, I don't believe really in marriage at all. But if I had to pick a model, I think that polygamy is the better one for women. Um, because, yeah, you we can all reproduce with Vin Diesel, and we can all have Vin Diesel babies, 
and we don't have to wait hand and foot for the same dude. And what if Vin Diesel dies, huh? Then what? What happens to widows in our society? A lot of them are just kind of like fucked or historically. I mean, things are changing. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that women couldn't even own property. Like, if enough men in your life die, like, you're just going to become some fucking homeless woman on the fucking street. And your kids are bastards. Um, but, you know, what if, what if Vin Diesel dies and I'm married to Vin Diesel and six other women? Then fuck yeah. I don't give a fuck. We'll be fine. We got, I got six, there's six bitches taking care of the fucking the fucking farm we don't we don't even need another vin diesel we already have like 400 vin diesel babies you know um if we could do something like this and then maybe like date whoever we want that'd be cool you know why is reproduction and dating just like linked uh you know maybe maybe those shouldn't be linked maybe i should have a a fucking vin diesel alpha (laughs) vin diesel alpha albert einstein babies and date whoever i want huh huh all right, that's my thoughts on that. I'm I'm done. I could go more into it, but I'm not going to. Th- this is part of where my mind has been at recently. I've just been thinking a lot about stuff, stuff. I've been getting into Simone de Beauvoir, which is making me depressed. I'm becoming a radical, a radical fucked up bitch. But anyway, I want to talk about what's natural. What is natural? Because, like, you know, in the conversation I was just beginning to initiate, we can see already how ideas of naturalism and what is and is not natural become uh, very relevant to these kinds of arguments as we're trying to navigate them. So I want to start with an appeal to my audience. First of all, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um... Vin Diesel sucks. I'm gonna kick you out. <laughs> That's my boy. Um, but anyway, uh, appeal to the audience. How would you guys define this term natural? This is an argument that we had in Phenomenology Club recently, and it's it's uh, something that I think comes up in a lot of the discussions that I do on here, and I've said a few times I would like to have a discussion about what is natural? What is this concept? What does it mean? And so that's what we're doing tonight. So what do you guys think? What does natural mean? Let's go, somebody, come on. What does natural mean? Hmm? Hmm? Well, while I wait for some of you to give your own answers, let's ask Miriam Webster because Miriam is our bitch. This is who we constantly reference. Um, because, you know, for one, we want to have consistency, so we have to pick a dictionary and stick with that one. Uh, but also, Miriam, in my opinion, just has the best definitions. And I call Miriam her, but but you know what? I'm scared to look this up. Who is Miriam Webster? It sounds like Miriam, so I say it's a, it's a woman. But I suspect that Miriam Webster is actually like a hyphenated conglomerate of two last names that were probably men. Let's look it up. Oh, I'm right. But look, they're brothers. 
I don't care. Miriam's still my bitch. Uh, from Wikipedia. Merriam-Webster, Inc. is an American company that publishes reference books and is especially known for its dictionaries. In 1828, George and Charles Merriam founded the company as G&C Merriam Company in Springfield, Massachusetts. Ooh, didn't know there was a Springfield in Massachusetts. In 1843, after Noah Webster died, the company bought the rights to an American dictionary of the English language from Webster's estate. All Merriam-Webster dictionaries trace their lineage to this source. Okay, so George and Charles Merriam uh, basically made a American dictionary of the English language. Then some guy named Noah Webster died and his estate bought it and then they got married. Made the Merriam-Webster dictionary. How'd I know? How'd I know? It wasn't Miriam. <laughs> Whatever, fuck it. Marion's my bitch. Let's go back to her. Let's ask her. What does natural mean? So, typical, we have many definitions listed here. I'll, I'll begin reading some of them off. Natural. An adjective. Entry number one. Based on an inherent sense of right and wrong. I.e. natural justice. That's such an interesting entry to put as your first one, but wow. All right, let's keep reading. Entry number two, A, being in accordance with or determined by nature, i.e. natural impulses. Okay, this, this seems like something we should be familiar with. To be. Having or constituting a classification based on features existing in nature. Womp, 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 womp. Okay, so that seems pretty, pretty self-explanatory. It also seems like the way that most of us use this term, I would say. Um, being in accordance with or determined by nature. Now, now for curiosity's sake, let's see how Miriam defines nature. Are you ready? Nature. A noun. Entry number 1A. The inherent character or basic constitution of a person or thing. Hmm. This is the second time this word inherent has come up. I'm, I'm going to have to look that up as well. <laughs> Man, I love the dictionary, don't you? It's just so fucking fun. I can't get enough. 1B, disposition or temperament. Okay, that makes sense, you know. Um, that's, that's a more, what, colloquial use of the word. Uh, wow, these definitions are very, very poetic. Not what I would expect from Miriam. Sometimes Miriam is just, like, out there. 2A, a creative and controlling force in the universe. Wow. 2B, an inner force, such as instinct, appetite, desire, or the sum of such forces in an individual. That is so interesting, and especially for all you philosophy nerds, um, who I'm sure are familiar with this history of naturalism, which is a school of philosophy that deals very much with these sorts of concepts. Some people use the word naturalism to describe the school of philosophy almost synonymously with the 
the school of materialism, which is the philosophical school that deals with the ideas that basically everything is material. And in that sense, these philosophies are sort of... um, I wouldn't say opposite, but they contradict popular metaphysical philosophies. And metaphysical literally means beyond the physical. You know, we hear this word used often to describe things like spiritual concepts or, mm, you know, ephemeral type concepts that aren't necessarily rooted in reality or could be demonstrated by something like the natural sciences. Um, But I want to, before I continue, let's just, just for fun, I swear this is the last one. I want to look up inherent because twice now inherent has been listed in these definitions of nature and natural. (laughs) It's just an endless loop. Inherent. Involved in the constitution or essential character of something. Belonging by nature or habit. Isn't it so funny how so many words are just cross-referential? What does this word mean? It means that thing. And then that thing means the original word. Love it. This is the fun and also the difficulty in conversing and finding agreement, right? Um, Going back to the chat. I asked you guys to give me some definitions. What is natural? Let's let's see if any of you gave me some. Alice says, I think natural is debatable. Maybe science types say what is natural is what is biological, while religious types may believe it so be believe it to be moral. Okay, okay. Andrew Finney says, a contextual adjective. I, I think I agree uh, with both of you. Firstly, with Alice, who says that the word has uh, different, different meanings depending on the context. In a scientific context, it might mean something biological. And in a religious context, might mean something more, something that might be more reflective of these more poetic definitions that we just read from Miriam, where they're talking about the inherent nature of good and evil, <laughs> whatever the fuck it said. Um, and this kinds of, I mean, these kinds of discussions, or or this uh, this idea of what is natural, becomes so relevant to so many discussions right like um to think about some popular ones like um vegetarianism this is a thing that i did a a live stream on like a month or two ago um a lot of the debate around vegetarianism has to do with these ideas of what is natural and what is unnatural you know we know that a lot of people say that It is unnatural to be vegetarian because humans naturally eat meat. That's what they say. But then when you investigate the actual history of human evolution, we know that that is not necessarily true. I mean, humans didn't really eat meat um, until they, I mean, they ate meat, but they, the whole culture and practice of eating meat became eating meat became entirely transformed once we had the advent of tools, things like knives and other cutting tools, and also with um, 
the advent of our ability to harness fire for cooking. I mean, it totally transformed our practices of meat eating. So what, in this sense, would be natural? I mean, this is a fun question. What is natural here? If we're going to say, okay, humans maybe naturally uh, were, what, omnivores? I guess because we ate insects and shit too, probably. Who knows? What, what is more natural here? Being vegetarian or, or being carnivorous? Because we all, for the most part, I assume, we eat cooked meat, right? So what we do could be understood in some context as something that is unnatural, right? Because is, is harnessing fire natural? Is the fact that we take fire into our homes and cook the meat natural? The fact that we fashion and manufacture knives so we can dismember the meat and then cook it up with the fire we harness? Is this natural? What is more natural? Um, I agree very much with Andrew, who just said that natural is just a contextual adjective. And Andrew, you also just said the word is not unlike objective. And actually, I'll disagree with with that. Because uh, why not? I don't think that it's really comparable to a word like objective. Because objective describes something that I think is entirely hypothetical right and can never be accessed i think natural differs from the word objective in that sense because natural is a demonstrable concept but as abraham lincoln has just said everything is natural right what can be understood as natural if everything is born of the natural world right how can anything, even a thing like the building of computers, which I didn't read it, but I know that this is another definition that Merriam-Webster offers, um, that like human technology is, is defined as something that is unnatural. Everything else is like the natural world uninterrupted. Um, Sorry, I was just reading the chat. <laughs> I need to not look at it. But yeah, like what 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 then if if everything is natural, right? Everything is born of the natural world, then what could be understood as unnatural? And this is also why I didn't want to say just a moment ago, um, that naturalism and philosophies of naturalism are necessarily opposed to metaphysical philosophies because actually the thing that we call metaphysical naturalism is the school of philosophy that deals with the concept and centers the concept that everything is natural. Everything arises from the natural world. And in that sense, the supernatural does not exist. So metaphysical in one understanding of the word almost means supernatural, you know. But in this understanding, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It basically... Um, puts the ontology of being of everything in nature everything arises from nature all processes are governed by nature and um we can we should try to center our philosophies within this framework with an understanding that processes of nature are interacting with literally everything we do even as we build societies and such and this is you know obviously another thing that becomes a uh, 
infinitely complex and variable within these various arguments, things like vegetarianism, even ideas of government, you know. I mean, I've spoken about it so much, um, you know, but I'm somebody who believes very much that government exists to contradict natural hierarchy. And uh, that seems to be a very contentious idea to some people, especially these like conservative type like douche bro, alpha bro, Ben Shapiro bros, who are like, you know, uh, equality doesn't exist in nature. So like hierarchies are always going to emerge. So like get the fuck over it. It's like, yeah, government doesn't exist in nature either. That's why we built it, bitch. So that I could be safe, so I don't have to fight you on the street with a fucking spear, you dumbass. That would be natural, right? But what do we do with this, um, this, this, this dilemma? Do we even, do we abandon the word natural entirely? Or do you think that it shows some demonstrable value? What do we think? If nothing is born from the natural world, nothing is not born from the natural world, I'm sorry, then what could natural mean? Do we want to abandon it as a concept entirely? Um, this is kind of a, the conflict that we came to in Phenomenology Club. Some people kind of were saying, yes, it's a useless concept. And I disagree very much with that because... I think that natural is a demonstrable concept and it's also a useful one. And for myself personally, the concept of natural is integral to many of my most deeply held positions in my philosophical worldview. For example, my ideas about morality, which Alice mentioned already. Uh, you know, how religious people believe that morality is sort of inborn. I don't believe that necessarily but i do believe that what we have come together to define as morality which exists as a construct of society and of language and of knowledge i think that even though it is true this is artificially made made by us and constructed the forces that govern us to eventually come up with such a concept as morality are rooted in the natural world. Things like empathy. Empathy is not a rational response. Empathy, I mean, it is in, in some ways. Um, you know, if I find out your husband just got hit by a car, I will empathize. I didn't have to see it happening. I mean, even if I did see it happening, it would still be a rational response. But it, it it's also a physiological response, or at least it's assumed to be. Because who knows? I don't know anything. Everything's assumed. It's the Matrix. Bleh. Um, <laughs> no, but, but for real. I mean, even uh, other animal species, non-human animals, they also demonstrate empathy, some of them in ways that are very peculiar. Uh, we see examples of interspecies uh, empathy at play. Things like the fucking... I need to look up the name because I tried to say it once on here and I couldn't. The hamster and the snake that are friends. These motherfuckers are my favorite. <laughs> it's like Haribu. <laughs> I keep calling Haribu. Haribu? Okay, it's not Haribu and Yochin. Okay, okay, I got it. The hamster and snake that are best friends at the Tokyo Zoo. Gohan and Aochan. Okay. <laughs> Which one's what? Okay, Aochan is the hamster. 
and Gohan is the snake. Yeah, these motherfuckers are best friends. Look them up. They're so fucking cute. Why did that happen, huh? That's not, that's, is that natural? Is the snake and the hamster becoming friends natural? What do you guys think? Because here actually points to where I think we can start to define some criteria for how we can make natural an applicable concept in a way that is logically consistent every time we use it. But first, tell me, is the snake and the hamster, assuming, of course, we don't want to completely abandon this concept of natural, the word, let's say that we decide we're going to use it, and I haven't said exactly what criteria we'll uh, establish to use it in a way that's consistent, but let's, let's assume we're going to keep using it. What do we say about Gohan and Aochan, the snake and the hamster? Is this natural? Abraham Lincoln says, they naturally became friends. Okay. So, obviously, this is true. Because Gohan and Aochan are natural biological beings. They naturally became friends. Uh, because there's no way to unnaturally do anything, right? Everything is born of the natural world. And so, this natural relationship emerged out of the natural world. But... Like Andrew Finney said earlier, I think that natural should be used in a way that is contextual. This is the criteria I'm going to propose. And I want you to tell me if you think that it becomes, uh, that it becomes clear enough that we could use this in any instance without coming into much conflict. This is what I came up with. I think that when it's defined by a context and also by a statistical likelihood or even the hypothetical statistical likelihood, I think then that the term natural becomes completely usable. And I think that we already use it in this way, you know, to talk about Aochan and Gohan. <laughs> I'm mad. I thought their names were Haribu and Gochan. <laughs> I'm just going to keep calling that Haribu and Gochan. <laughs> Sorry, it's not funny. It's like funny in my head. Um, to speak of them in this instance, I think that you could say, like Abraham Lincoln just did, in a universalist sense, if, this, if the context is our universal natural environment or a universal conception of our natural environment, then yes, you could say that this is a natural relationship that emerged from the natural order, you know. But when we're looking specifically at this phenomena of a hamster and a snake becoming best fucking buds i think that it's reasonable to say if this is the limiting context that this actually presents as quite unnatural because it is statistically unlikely you know it is more likely that a snake and a hamster upon meeting will not become friends it's more likely that the snake will consume the hamster because this is what is observed as uh, what most typically happens, right? And this is why the scientists went to feed the hamster to the snake. Because they assumed, I introduced the hamster to the snake's environment. The snake will consume it. The snake will <laughs> receive its nourishment from this little hamster. But that is not what happened. And that's why it was a surprise. And that's why people were like, wow, cute. Let's take pictures of Haribu and Gochan. 
I think that in this circumstance, if we make the limiting context, the idea of hamsters and snakes becoming friends, I think that it is reasonable to say that this is a very unnatural phenomena. What do you guys think? Do you guys think that by establishing this criteria that it's ultimately defined by context and also the statistical likelihood or the presumed statistical likelihood of a thing occurring, that that becomes reasonable criteria to use this word natural in a way that makes sense? Because I do. I think that when something is an outlier, uh, it's it's it can this term natural and unnatural can become useful um and the idea is that it seems more natural for these other things to happen more frequently you know or if left uninterrupted that nature would presume it's it's usual course ODD says how do we know they are friends because they haven't tried to kill each other (laughs) ODD are you suggesting that that Gohan and Aochan just fucking hate each other (laughs) they're not friends they just the snake just doesn't want to eat it maybe the snake thinks Gohan smells like shit or (laughs) Aochan he's just like I'm not gonna eat this motherfucker give me a clean hamster do you know who I am I'm Gohan of Borneo. Borneo. <laughs> I don't know where Gohan's from. Gohan, where are you from? What kind of a snake is Gohan? Gohan. Gohan, you motherfucker. Well, one of the zookeepers says, Ao Chan seems to enjoy Gohan's company very much. Now, of course, that's anecdotal, but shit. They're a zookeeper and I'm not, so that's that's what we're going on, I think, ODD. That's why we're assuming that they're friends. Lex says, uh, I presume in response to what I just said a moment ago, but both subject are natural but both subjects are natural on their own before they were friends, so what would be the changing factor? Well, Lex, what I was proposing is that, you know, clearly these are both natural subjects. Um, and the relationship can even be understood as natural, even though it was uh, created by humans. You know, humans enslaved these animals and decided to put them together as part of a feeding process. It's like very orchestrated. But what the context is, the defining context is uh, a consideration of the relationships between hamsters and snakes usually it seems it seems to make sense that the statistical likelihood that a snake and a hamster when introduced to each other will end up with the snake at least attempting to eat the hamster or at least in a situation like this where the snake isn't really provided any other food you know whatever it gets it eats you know So this is the thing that I think is changing and why I think you could call it unnatural in this context, not in a universal context, but in this context, 
um, because it seems much more likely, and this seems supported by statistical evidence, which is really all we have to go on for anything, especially coming to conclusions about things like animal interactions, uh, it seems much more likely that the snake would consume its hamster friend. What do you think about that? Does that satisfy you? Abraham Lincoln says, So we define something as unnatural when the action in question is done by a species or a kind of species where that action is not expected of that species or kind of species. Well, I don't think it needs to be limited necessarily to um, species. Um, let's think of something else. Let's think of... Um, shit, I'm, I'm so bad at like astronomy or anything so this is entirely hypothetical i hope it makes sense i'm sure it probably doesn't but let's like assume um scientists come up with some sort of uh probability algorithm to determine that like the likelihood um that it will hmm, i don't even know if that works hmm I mean, let's say an asteroid lands tomorrow, and it's populated with, like, uh, no, that wouldn't even work, because it just, everything in space, I feel like, just feels natural, you know? I'm trying to think of something that doesn't have to do with, like, species necessarily, you know? Um, say that a computer just fucking rises up out of the ground, <laughs> you know? A a fully formed computer with a monitor, a mouse, a keyboard just rises up out of the mud with a screensaver on that says, Hello. <laughs> I would probably call that, at least in that immediate phenomena, I would call that a very unnatural occurrence, you know. But of course, in a universalist conception of what is happening even this is technically natural you know i mean it's hypothetical so it it becomes easier to create such an absurd example but if such a thing could happen something like this you know it doesn't really have anything to do with like species on species interaction if a computer just rises up out of the ground i would call that an unnatural phenomenon because the statistical likelihood of a fully formed computer rising up out of the mud just seems so fucking low it's like slim to none but if it happened i would have to concede that this too is a natural phenomenon in the broader context of the whole universe you know you know um Let's see, let's see, let's see. Phil says, but these aren't wild animals meeting accidentally. We're ta He's talking about uh, Gohan and Ao-chan again. But these aren't wild animals meeting accidentally. Both animals are confined by humans. Would you say, Phil, that that makes this uh, entire interaction between them already present with an element of unnaturalism? Uh, because this relationship and set of circumstances was created by humans. But aren't we also natural? Is everything we do natural? Hmm? 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 
Um, ooh, Atrocity Guide is here. Oh my God, that's my bitch. Hey, Atrocity Guide, everybody listening to this, watch Atrocity Guide's YouTube. She makes the best videos on all of spooky YouTube and has an A++ narrator voice. What's up, Atrocity? Atrocity says, some snakes are super picky and will only recognize certain rodents as prey. Don't tell us that. We like to think that they're BFF at the Tokyo Zoo, okay? Okay? Don't kill our vibe. No, but yeah, I'm, that, that, that uh, brings us back to what ODD said earlier when he was hypothesizing that maybe they're not friends. <laughs> maybe, maybe they secretly don't even like each other. But we don't want to think about that. Fuck that. Um, let's see. Delilah says... Unnatural things could also take place in other sciences like chemistry. Like if some acid reacts with something in an unexpected way, it would seem unnatural. Delilah, it is so interesting and relevant that you say this because something I did want to mention is that um, those of you who were not in our uh, reading our reading series when we did David Hume's reading I encourage you uh to read whether through our club or on your own read some David Hume um specifically his ideas on this problem of induction you could even read the Wikipedia article because I mean David Hume is um somebody who's very famous a philosopher he's a scottish philosopher um what year did he write this a treatise on human behavior oh hold on david hume the treatise of human nature david hume has all sorts of wonderful contributions to the philosophical literature especially his ideas about naturalism um, okay, A Treatise of Human Nature is 1739 to 1740. That's when it was written. Okay, okay. Um, oh, but we read, okay, what we read in uh, our speed reading series, and if you're a member, go to the website. You can get a link to the PDF for this if you want to get a free full version of this text. Um, an inquiry concerning human understanding from 1748. And in the reading that we did, we read about his problem of induction. And this is something that Delilah just made me think about. This idea that um, basically the entire phenomena of cause and effect can't even be rationalized at all. And this, if I'm not mistaken, because, I mean, Kant's discography, <laughs> that's just what I call philosopher's body of work now because I think it's funny. Kant's discography is huge and massive. And you basically, like, to be an expert on Kant, have to, like, get a fucking PhD in Kant, which I certainly do not have. But we read Kant after David Hume. And if I'm understanding correctly, they have this argument. Kant has this argument with David Hume's ideas about um, cause and effect not being a thing that can be rationalized. Kant believes that this isn't something.
saying that because cause and effect cannot be rationalized, there needs to be essentially a philosophical category to encompass this reality, you know, whereas David Hume, if I'm understanding correctly, sort of believed that it's okay and ultimately it's sort of trivial to become obsessed with having to rationalize this idea of cause and effect. Uh, Kant believed that no, that is not the way to do philosophy. We have to account for this, even if it's just to create some sort of vague nebulous category that basically serves as a placeholder for this disparity. And I don't even know if I'm making sense, but basically this idea that cause and effect cannot be rationalized, for those of you who are unfamiliar, there is no rational way to say that, let's say I'm holding a rock, okay? If I drop the rock, the rock falls to the ground, right? There is no way to rationalize that if I pick up the rock, open my hand again, that the rock will again drop to the earth. And even if I do this 100 times, and every time that I do this, I pick up the rock, I open my hand, and it falls to the ground, there is really still no way to rationalize that one day I might just pick up the rock, open my hand, and it floats into the fucking sky, you know? It can't be rationalized. And this becomes really interesting the more you think about it, because it's like, well... Why do we even feel like it's rational, you know? Because I don't need language or a concept uh, to understand this phenomena. I mean, when we were children in elementary school, did your teacher really say to you? I mean, maybe when we were studying science, how it works, this idea that if you observe a thing and you observe it repeatedly, that that becomes essentially integrated as a scientific fact. But did anyone ever sit and explain to you, look... If you do a thing over and over again, it means that the thing will happen the more you repeat that same action, you know? It almost seems like this rationalization of an idea like cause and effect is natural, is born from potentially our own physiology, you know? Maybe it's literally a function of human... cognition but not just human cognition I mean it seems like animals are also enacting this principle you know I mean how do babies learn to walk babies aren't sitting there thinking oh well I've heard that if I do the thing once and then I repeat the action the thing will be repeated and will (laughs) likely happen you know babies see you walking and they try to do it and they keep trying to do it the same way I mean they're totally adherent to this principle of cause and effect but there's no there's no rationalization for it so what the fuck it's magical um so that's very interesting uh yeah and you should definitely read read that text i got so so hype over that text um i want to read the whole thing david hume uh and speaking of david hume uh david hume also has a very uh famous other other (laughs) philosophical problem um which is called uh well it's not called um it's called the is ought problem and it's basically this idea and remember david hume was writing in the 18th century so these these ideas might seem more controversial 
uh, in his context. But it's the idea that just because a thing is natural doesn't mean that we ought (laughs) to pursue it. That's why it's called the is ought. Just because it is natural or is likely natural doesn't mean we ought to pursue it or to follow in that trajectory. And, you know, to go back to these dude bros I was talking about earlier who are always like, hierarchy's natural, social hierarchy's natural, systems of oppression are natural, murder, this and that. So get over it, you know. This is a perfect example of when a thing like the is ought problem from David Hume uh, can come into play here because he didn't believe that just because a thing is natural means we ought to pursue it. I mean, murder is a great example, you know, murder is natural, right? So what? What does that what does that mean? Should we do nothing about it? Should we not seek to interact with it? Should we promote murder? You know, like if 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 the justification for a thing existing or at least existing relatively uninterrupted is that it's natural, then why even stop there? Maybe we should actually pursue this thing. If murder's natural, maybe that means murder is good. Maybe we should murder everybody. Maybe you should murder fucking everyone, huh? How can you, how can you, where's the line drawn, you know? Is the line going to be drawn at, let's just tolerate this thing? Why not promote it? <sighs> and this is related to um, another uh, big idea in philosophy called the naturalistic fallacy. Um introduced by British philosopher G.E. Moore in his 1903 book, Principa Ethica. Moore argues it would be fallacious to explain that which is good reductively in terms of natural properties such as pleasant or desirable. So this is another big uh, contention in the school of naturalism, which is a like I said, the school of philosophy that deals with all these, all these ideas, you know, that a thing um, might be undesirable because it's unnatural, or conversely, it might be desirable uh, because it is natural, or because it is natural, it should be desirable, such as such as such. Um, oh shit, I'm going on 52 minutes, I don't want to continue too much here. Um, what did I write? I wrote some notes. Because Delilah, you suggested a few episodes ago that I make notes before I talk. And I, I really appreciated that idea. So shout outs to you. Any, any, any ideas um, before I get out of here? Because, yeah, I, I could continue, but we're going on 52 minutes. So I'm going to not. What do we think? Do you guys feel satisfied with uh, some of this criteria that I suggested Uh, could make the term natural applicable do you also even think that it matters um because i like i said i find the concept of natural to be very useful in many circumstances especially in my own views on ethics and morality um also things like you know feminism i mean so many so many things uh 
and beliefs I have do integrate some understanding of this word natural and the concept, so I'm not ready to abandon it, but I recognize that if I want to use the word in a way that is logically consistent, aka rational, I need to establish some criteria to make up for this disparity that we have all just explored a little bit together this idea that clearly in the most universal hyperbolic sense of this concept natural there is nothing that exists anywhere that is unnatural right everything is natural everything is born of the natural world what could be unnatural nothing so what do we do with the concept i suggested that if we define it by its context and also <laughs> use a, a measure of statistical likelihood that this concept can be useful. That is my proposed solution because I'm a solutions bitch because I represent New Jersey. Woo! So any concluding thoughts? Alice says, I'm satisfied with the conclusion that has been reached. I am very pleased to hear this, Alice. I'm glad. Delilah. Yeah, I think your definition of natural is good. Natural is a useful word that people are going to continue to use, so just saying everything is natural is pretty useless. I agree. I am so glad that we are agreeing. Andrew says, I like that buttress. I'm good on that. Look at that. Look at that. Don't you guys love agreeing? Agreeing is such a rare phenomenon, I feel like. At least in, like, discourse out here on the fucking, like, interwebs and stuff. I think you find agreement much more in, like, your friends and family circles and conversations and stuff. But it seems like the mode of discourse is just so treacherous these days. Nobody really wants to find agreement, right? They just want to fucking have the best take and be the best one with the most legs and the best blah. But what's the fun in that, huh? Huh? It's like, it's like, it's like doing a puzzle, but the pieces don't fit together and you don't want them to. I mean, I hate puzzles. I really hate puzzles. They're boring. I hate them. Maybe like a small puzzle, but a big puzzle? Fuck no. Who's got the time? But, um, I love, I love coming to agreement. Coming to agreement is always my goal because it is the MO of phenomenology. Um, to find agreement and to maximize the potential of philosophy. So thank you all for having this discussion with me. I'll say one more time for those of you who missed the beginning. Next Sunday, a week from today, we are having our Hegel meeting on the phenomenology of spirit reading. It's 30 pages. It's really not very long at all. Uh, it's provided to you via a PDF, which you can access via our club website, which is www.phenomenology.club. To have access to the speed reading materials, you need to sign up on the Patreon. It's only $1. I really suggest that you do because our reading series is just really fun. And it's a fun way to force yourself to read philosophy, uh, especially for those of you who are like me and, you know, work better under some pressure provided by my peers so we have a whole group of people who do these readings together and I will pressure you and I will also read it out loud and 
uh, provide you with a link to that for those of you who either can't read. I'm not being facetious. If you're illiterate or something, seriously join because I read them out loud. You can listen. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a great, 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 great way to learn and read. And this is a very famous work, especially for all you Marxists out there. I've been noticing I've been getting a lot more communist followers, which is cool. I don't know why. Shout outs to you people. I know that Hegel is one of Marx's favorite authors. So I'm just trying to think of all the ways I can pressure you into reading my, uh, st into joining my reading club. If you're, a, if you're a true Marxist, true communist, true socialist, whatever the fuck you guys be, then you will join my fucking reading club and get this fucking Hegel reading, okay? Don't you want to understand Marx, huh? Huh? Great. All right. Thanks, everybody. Um, love you all. And I'll, I'll, I'll see you back here. Same place. Uh, soon. Good night.